Well, let's all grab a seat, turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. They're going to stay the night in Detroit, I understand, and then they're going to get up and come on back tomorrow. So, Father, we thank you for the good crowd tonight. We thank you for the eager hearts that have come out, Lord, to study your word. Father, I pray that as we go through your word, may your word go through us, challenge us, Lord, encourage us, love us as usual, Lord, and just fill us with your knowledge and your strength and your joy. Thank you, Lord, for working in our lives. Speak to us tonight by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Once I was sitting in a mountain lodge with my feet propped up by a roaring fire. I mean, it was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful time. There was a roaring fire in the fireplace when all of a sudden I noticed an alarming sight. For there was a bush just outside the window. And it seemed to be on fire. And so I jumped up, ran to the window to see what was on fire. Of course, I was relieved to discover that nothing was ablaze. What I had actually seen was the reflection of the fireplace in the window pane. And since the bush was just outside the window, the bush provided a wonderful backdrop for the fireplace. But what was an optical illusion for me was exactly what Moses saw. He saw a burning bush. The bush was on fire, but it was not consumed. And when Moses left his flock and went to inspect this burning bush, God spoke to him from the midst of the bush, Moses, Moses, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. God, you see, had a job for Moses. His people, Israel, had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God wanted to use Moses to deliver these people. And you would think Moses would jump at this assignment. You remember 40 years earlier, Moses had tried to deliver the Hebrews himself. One day, he saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew And he killed the Egyptian with his bare hands, buried him in the sand. And yet the Hebrews weren't appreciative. They squealed on Moses. He ended up a fugitive. Moses got added to Pharaoh's most wanted list. At the time, God wasn't ready to use Moses. And what's more, Moses wasn't ready to be used. But now the day has come. And God issues the call. God is ready to unleash His miraculous power to free His people. And you would think Moses would be up for the challenge. But that's not what we find. After 40 years in the wilderness, Moses has been humbled. Moses is now aware of his own inadequacies and his insufficiencies. And Moses comes up with five excuses He says, God, I am not the man for the job. And here's why. He gives five excuses. You remember chapter 3, verse 11. Moses had asked, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? In verse 13, he had asked God, when the Hebrews asked me who sent me, what shall I tell them? And God replied, say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moses questions his fitness for the job. He questions his reception from the people. And beginning in chapter 4, he gives one more excuse. He says, Then Moses 
answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Moses doubts if even the Hebrews are going to trust him. His first excuse was, Who am I? His second excuse was, God, who are you? And now his third excuse is, Who are these people? I don't know them. They don't know me. And God bolsters his sagging confidence with three signs that Moses are to take with him to Egypt. Verse 2, So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. It was a shepherd's staff. Oh, about six foot long and with a hook in the end. And over the last 40 years, Moses has tended sheep in Midian, and he has become quite familiar with this shepherd's staff. He's become extremely attached to his rod. He's used it to scale steep slopes and to reach hard to get places to free lonely sheep. He's leaned on it in the hot summer sun. He's used this rod to fight off wild animals and to beat back low brush. He has even used his staff to correct his sheepdogs on a number of occasions. Everywhere Moses has gone, this rod has been by his side. In fact, it was not uncommon for shepherds to have the same rod their whole life long. Moses' rod was more than a stick or a staff. It was his best friend. It was a trusted ally. And God says, cast it to the ground. A shepherd would never throw down his rod. This would be like asking a policeman to give up his revolver or his nightstick. God is saying to Moses, turn loose of what you've been relying on all these years. Moses, throw down that source of your confidence. So Moses cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. And since Moses was a shepherd and quite an outdoorsman and was probably familiar with snakes, this must have been a poisonous serpent for Moses to flee from it. In fact, some Bible scholars believe that this snake was a cobra. And it's interesting that on the crown worn by the Pharaoh in Egypt, there was a cobra. In fact, the Pharaoh's crown was in the shape of a coiled cobra ready to strike. The cobra was Pharaoh's official insignia. That becomes important later. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. You'd never pick up a snake by the tail. You pick it up by the tail and it'll twist around and it'll bite you. You pick up a snake right behind its head. You grab it right behind its head. And yet Moses, God tells Moses, notice, to grab this snake by its tail. God is teaching Moses to trust him. God is teaching Moses not to rely upon his own instincts, but to trust in the Lord. And we're told, and he reached out his hand and he caught it and it became a rod in his hand. Immediately, it stiffens back up. It turns from a snake back into a staff. Moses catches it. It becomes a stick of wood again. Verse 5 reveals the effect this sign is going to have on the skeptical Hebrews down in Egypt. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. You'll have this sign, Moses, to show them. And they'll believe. But God gives Moses a second sign. He's told that when he gets to Egypt, he needs to do a Napoleon Bonaparte impersonation. 
you know, sticking his hand up into his coat, you know, up under his jacket. Verse 6 tells us, Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. That's interesting that Moses' hand becomes leprous when he sticks it close to his heart. And guys, that's our problem. Before we come to Jesus, our heart is wicked. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again. Back, you know, back up under his shepherd's coat. And he drew it out of his bosom and behold, it was restored as the other flesh. God is showing Moses that he's powerful over both snakes and leprosy. The snake was a symbol for Satan. Leprosy is a type of sin. And God is able to overcome both. Well, verse 8 tells us, Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first son, that they may believe the message of the latter son. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river, the river Nile, and pour it on the dry land. And the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Egypt's most important asset was the river that ran through the center of the country. The Nile's annual flooding irrigated the fields that fed the nation. And for Moses to turn the river water into blood would have been an ominous warning to the Egyptians and a very convincing show of authority and power to the Hebrews. God is showing Moses that he has nothing to worry about in Egypt. He's going to arrive armed with these three signs, and he's going to serve notice to the Egyptians. These signs will rally support among the Hebrews. Moses, trust God. You've got nothing to worry about. He has armed you with these signs. But in verse 10, (laughs) Moses musters another excuse. Then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Literally, heavy of speech and heavy of tongue. You know, it's possible that Moses stuttered. That's a possibility. It's also possible that he had some other kind of speech impediment. But in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, Stephen testifies something interesting He says that Moses was mighty in words and deeds. In other words, Stephen had sources that described Moses as an effective, if not articulate, communicator. I believe that Moses was just groping for an excuse here. Oh yeah, he might have stumbled over a word every now and then. and Admittedly, he was a little bit rusty in his speech making, but he was an adequate speaker. Stephen wouldn't have said he was mighty in words and deeds if he'd not been. He just doesn't want to go to Egypt. That's his problem. That's the real issue. And so the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now here's one of the strongest statements in Scripture on the sovereignty of God. In essence, God is saying here that nothing happens apart from God's will. That the purposes of God are even behind the laws of heredity. You know, the Bible teaches us that though congenital diseases and birth defects are a result of man's original sin, nevertheless, God has the power to prevent them. God is all-powerful. 
God is in total control, and what he allows comes with a purpose. The point to Moses is that if God makes man's mouth, then God can cure a stuttering problem. God can put words in that mouth. God can help that mouth articulate a message. And in light of Exodus 4 verse 11, I think this has some interesting ramifications for today. Here's one reason why I think it's wrong for parents to abort a baby just because the tests come back and say that it'll be born deaf or blind or with a cleft palate or with Down syndrome. So-called birth defects apparently are allowed by God. God is the one who says, I make the mute and the deaf and the seeing and the blind. Who are we to think that one genetic package is any more deserving of an opportunity for life than another? Do we know better than God? I don't think so. In fact, we all have handicaps. We all are born with a major birth defect. It's called a sin nature. And unless you get fixed by Jesus, man, you're headed for hell. We're all born with a major birth defect. Well, apparently Moses had once been affluent and an articulate speaker. But for the last 40 years, he's been preaching to sheep. And obviously every sermon has been bad. Now he's a little skittish about starting all over again. I mean, his skills are rusty and musty. How can... How can he get started again? But again, how can he resist God's answer? Because look what God says in verse 12 to his excuse. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So what if you stutter, Moses? I'm going to be there. I'm going to put the words in your mouth. I'm going to teach you what to say. The God who made man's mouth in the first place is going to guide and direct Moses' mouth. This is tremendous. God promises to run sound for Moses' ministry. Flavio's good, but if God promised to run sound, I'd let him. Well, up until now, God has been very patient with Moses. He's been faithful to deal lovingly and gently with Moses, with what I think God considers to be legitimate excuses. But there is one thing, guys, that God will not tolerate. He'll hear your excuses, but there's one thing He won't tolerate, and that is your unwillingness. And that's what angers God in verse 13. For Moses says to God, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. In other words, Lord, please send anybody but me. Moses just doesn't want this job. Guys, God is patient with us to a point. As long as our excuses are honest and legitimate, God will shore up our inadequacies. He will provide us assurances and signs. But if we become unwilling, God gets angry. You see, there's a big difference between Lord, I can't and Lord, I won't. God can deal with the I can't, but He's not going to deal with the I won't. Repentance is a willing heart. That's what He expects from us. And here Moses just doesn't want to go. So, verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, 
and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God, and you shall take this rod in your hand, which you shall do the signs. Moses will hold the rod. Moses will hear from God. Aaron will be the anchor man. He'll be the talking head, so to speak. Moses will seek the Lord. Moses will supply the substance. Aaron will bump his gums. And understand, this is not a good solution to the problem. In fact, this is more a punishment for Moses' reluctance than it is a help for the problem because we're going to find out later that this old Aaron causes Moses and the Israelites a lot of problems. He does. Verse 18 tells us, So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now I think this is really a bit comical. (laughs) Let me go and see if they're still alive. That bears no resemblance whatsoever to what God has called Moses to do. (laughs) Moses just doesn't tell Jethro the whole story. He doesn't tell Jethro what God has really told him to do. Moses probably figured there's no way the guy's going to believe me anyway, so why even get into it with him? You know, he's going to tell his father-in-law that God is going to use me to work supernatural signs and deliver three million Israelis from the most powerful nation and the most powerful army on the earth? Give me a break. Reminds me of the mom who asked her son what he had learned in Sunday school that morning. And the little guy said, Mom, Moses and his army stood on the shore and they fired their guns at the Egyptians. While the Navy came with their boats and the Marines came with their helicopters and flew the Hebrews and shuttled them across the sea to the dry land. And the mom looked at him and said, now, Johnny, is that really what you learned in Sunday school this morning? And he replied, nah, mom, but if I told you what the teacher really said, you'd never believe me. (laughs) Well, this was Moses' attitude toward Jethro. He's not going to believe me anyway. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men are dead who sought your life. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And don't miss that subtlety. Before this shepherd's staff was the rod of Moses, but now it's called the rod of God. And why? Because Moses threw it down. And in doing so, he admitted his own inadequacies But what he did have, what he did have, he dedicated to God. And when he picked that rod up again, it was no longer the rod of Moses. Now it was the rod of God. That same rod, now dedicated, had become a tool in the hand of God. We will see Moses use it to deliver these people. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. In other words, God is not going to let the Pharaoh off the hook until he learns the lessons that God wants to teach him. And guys, sometimes we'll discover this in our life. Sometimes we want to get out of the trial. We want to get out of the the issue that God's pressing in our lives. But God doesn't let us off the hook. Until we learn the lesson. 
Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. If Pharaoh holds on to God's firstborn, Israel, he'll lose his own firstborn. In other words, Pharaoh's stubbornness is going to cost him plenty before we're done. Verse 24 describes a strange, bizarre incident. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he, God, let Moses go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. What in the world is going on here? Moses and his family stop along the road to Egypt for a little emergency surgery. Now remember, circumcision was a sign that God had given to the Hebrew people to identify them as His own chosen nation. And in essence, if a Hebrew refused to be circumcised, it was a denial of his relationship with God. Evidently, Moses' wife, Zipporah, who was a Midianite, remember, not a Hebrew, had been resistant to having her son clipped. And it was not until her husband, Moses, was near death that she finally gave in and circumcised her son and obeyed the will of God. This is such a bizarre incident. But it holds both lessons for husbands and wives. Ladies, realize your disobedience to God. Your resistance to your husband's leadership may be causing God to punish him and your family. Perhaps your husband is dying inside because you're holding him back from obeying God. You're being resistant of something God has called him to do. God wants him to circumcise the family. He wants to cut away the flesh. He wants to throw out the TV set or get rid of this or get rid of that. Get away from the flesh. And because you're being resistant of that, he's dying inside. The family's dying inside. You have to trust his leadership, ladies. If God's calling him to do something, you need to let him go. And men, God holds you responsible for the spiritual direction of your family. I think what happened here is Zipporah. She she was a Midianite. She abhorred this thought of circumcising her son. And she became resistant. And I think Moses caved in to Zipporah. She didn't want to circumcise her child. And rather than Moses exercising his authority, wearing the pants in the family, showing a little leadership, doing the right thing, he failed to obey God for fear of upsetting his wife. And boy, I wonder if that's ever happened in your marriage. God is saying, Moses, how can you lead a nation if you can't even lead your own wife and your own family? Guys, we need to think about that. We want a great ministry from God. But are we the man of our own house? Are we able to lead our wives and lead our families? And notice who God punishes for this. Zipporah may be the one who's resistant, but Zipporah is not the one who's punished. Who's punished? Moses is the one who's punished. God seeks to kill him, as a matter of fact. Guys, the husband is the head of the family. 
You carry the responsibility, men. God has called you to be the spiritual leader. Always remember, when it comes to spiritual authority in the home and in the church, the buck stops with the buck. It's your responsibility, guys. Ladies, you need to let him lead. Verse 27. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. And so Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. After 400 years of bondage, Israel is about to be free. Chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Nor will I let Israel go. This particular Pharaoh was probably Amenhotep II, who reigned in Egypt for a quarter of a century. As a matter of fact, his mummy, not his mother, but his mummy, was actually discovered in 1898. And you can go to Egypt today and you can actually see what Amenhotep looked like. This Pharaoh looked like. But for me, he will always resemble Yul Brenner. <laughs> Yul Brenner to me was the perfect Pharaoh, was he not? And remember his famous line? So let it be written, so let it be done. Here's my philosophy for raising teenagers So let it be written. So let it be done. We don't argue about stuff. We, we don't get into negotiations. I give the order and then I say, so let it be written. So let it be done. I said that just this past week. So let it be written. So let it be done. I like that. And getting around without a car is the same as making bricks without straw. So there you have it. So let it be written. So let it be done. Now, when Yul Brenner refuses to budge, Moses and Aaron tell him, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, here is an important principle. God's deliverance is never an end in itself. He doesn't just deliver us out without bringing us in. Understand that. Moses wanted the people to make sacrifice to God. You see, God brings us out of bondage to do what? To turn us into worshipers. He brings us out to deliver us in so that we can come to God and make sacrifice to Him. And notice Moses' insistence. I think this is important. On three days. I think that's real interesting. There had to be three days separation between their bondage and their worship. And isn't that also true of us? 
How many days were there between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus? Between our bondage, our deliverance, and our worship? Three days. Verse 4 tells us, Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they had made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. Now, this Pharaoh is not just going to roll over to a slave. You didn't expect him to. He retaliates. He punishes the Hebrews on account of Moses' bold demands. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. This was a near impossible requirement. And also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. Now it's interesting, the Egyptians would use rods to beat the soles of your feet. That's where they would apply the, the scourging. On the soles of a prisoner's feet, so that every step they would take thereafter would remind them of their defiance against Egypt and its consequences. And so while these Hebrew leaders are being tortured, they're taunted. Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and the day as before? And then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? And man, enough is enough. Give us an explanation. There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. They want an explanation. Why these cruel treatments, these impossible demands? But the Pharaoh said, you are idle, idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. They might as well get ready for a daily beating. Verse 20. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. In essence, they say to Moses, Buddy, this is the final straw. You're doing us more harm than good. You know that. Verse 22. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. And Moses is discouraged, obviously. You know, apparently, Moses assumed he was just going to walk in and Pharaoh was going to cooperate. But that was not God's plan. 
And this is an important part of the story that we often overlook. Forty years in the desert had convinced Moses of his inadequacy. And I'm sure he's praying here now, God, I didn't want to come in the first place. I knew this was going to happen. God, I'm a failure. Moses didn't need to know that he was a failure. He didn't need to know that he was not in control here. But the Hebrews needed to know that. You see, God is going to use Moses in miraculous ways. But it's important first to see, for the people to see, that their leader was capable of mistakes and capable of failure. You see, if Moses had just strolled in and worked miraculous signs and called down plagues and parted the Red Sea, it would have been difficult for the Hebrews to differentiate between God and His messenger. The people needed to see this initial failure. So they would get their eyes off of Moses and get their eyes on the God who had sent Moses. This is why I preach a bad sermon every now and then. You know, I come out with a dud every now and then just so you'll know that, that hey, God is at work, but Sandy's a bum. Chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, You shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. He had not revealed that covenant name, Jehovah, to the patriarchs. Not yet. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. For I am the Lord. And in verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And at this point, Moses has nobody on his side but God. But hey, don't forget, one plus God equals a majority. (laughs) Oswald Sanders, in his book, Spiritual Leadership, makes an interesting observation. He says, The leader must be one who, while welcoming the friendship and support of all who can offer it, has sufficient resources to stand alone. Even in the face of fierce opposition, he or she must be prepared to have no one but God. And that's the case here with Moses. Every spiritual leader needs to realize that there comes a point when you're not really trusting God until you're willing to turn loose of everybody else's hand. Comes that point for all of us. Verse 10, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of this land. This time there's no mention of a three-day pass, is there? 
Moses is supposed to cut to the chase this time. Just tell him we're out of here. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? I mean, Moses is thinking, Come on, God, you're asking me to be bolder than before? I mean, I, I can't even convince my own people of what you're about to do, let alone convince the Pharaoh. And Moses falls back on an old excuse. Notice this. For I am of uncircumcised lips. I can't speak, God. Verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In other words, the Lord spoke again to Moses. Moses says, I can't speak, Lord, but the Lord can speak. He speaks to Moses. There's only one thing that can silence Moses' doubts here, that can erase his excuses, and that is the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Verses 14 through 25 give us the family trees of Jacob's first three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And we find that Moses was among the Levites. Verse 20 identifies for the first time the name of Moses' father and mother. They were Amram and Jochebed. And in verse 26, it sums it all up. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. He gives us their pedigree. And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. And how shall Pharaoh heed me? Well, we find out how in chapter 7. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall speak to Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Now, God's purpose in Egypt was not just to deliver the Hebrews. We learn that here. There were lessons that God also wanted to teach the Egyptians. At times, God even hardens Pharaoh's heart. In other words, He hardens Pharaoh's heart to keep him on the hook, to not let him off the hook until he gets the point of the lesson. At times, Pharaoh is about ready to give in, and God will harden his heart because he hasn't really learned the lesson yet. God will use this exodus to prove to the Egyptians and to her neighboring nations that he alone is the one true God. In fact, we're going to discover that the ten plagues that are about to come upon Egypt were not just ten plagues chosen at random. Each plague targeted a different Egyptian deity. 
In Exodus 12, verse 12, jot that down and go back to it later. Exodus 12, verse 12, God says, Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. In other words, with each plague, God was calling out a different Egyptian idol and proving His superiority over that Egyptian god. This was a deliberate assault on the gods of Egypt by the one true God. God is showing His superiority, that He is the one and only. And in fact, what goes on in Egypt at the Exodus is really a microcosm of the spiritual warfare that rages in the world today. God is still at war with the cobra, with Satan. Verse 6 tells us, Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Imagine, Moses and Aaron both in their 80s when they began their ministry. Which just goes to show it's never too late to start serving the Lord. I'm 40 years old, man. My life's over. I can't serve the Lord. Moses didn't get started till he was 80. What's your excuse? Verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants and it became a serpent. Satan has power too. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. And so the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, Paul names two of these Egyptian magicians, Janus and Jambres. And understand, this is no sleight of hand here. The occult is real. Guys, Satan has power. And Satan can perform miracles of his own to confuse people. As a matter of fact, we read in the Bible that a future Pharaoh, the Antichrist, will deceive many with lying wonders. Don't get confused. Satan can work miracles too. But notice what happens. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And it reminds me of 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yes, Satan has power, but God's power is greater. And Moses' rod swallowed up the Egyptian serpents. Round one in this slugfest goes to God. He is greater than the powers of Egypt. But notice Pharaoh's reaction to God's victory, verse 13. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. This guy's going to prove stubborn. This fight is going to go the distance. It's going to take a 10-round knockout for this Pharaoh to be done. Verse 14 tells us, So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water And you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. 
And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Now understand, the Nile River was sacred to the Egyptians. Each year, its banks flooded and irrigated the land and supplied the silt that became the fertile topsoil that they needed to raise their crops. And the Egyptians believed that the Nile was literally the bloodstream of Osiris, the god of the underworld. They worshiped the Nile. And in turning the Nile to blood, God is going to mock their false beliefs, their pagan gods. And here God is about to make their silly god, Osiris, bleed, in essence. Here's his bloodstream. God's going to make his Osiris bleed right here by turning the water into blood. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod. No longer the rod of Moses. Now it's the rod of God. And he struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. It's also interesting that the Egyptians worshipped the crocodiles who lived in the Nile River. And so a bloody river also became an assault on their habitat. And when neither Osiris nor the crocodiles were able to protect their environment and their river, it really showed the Egyptians what a croc all this was anyway. (laughs) Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. Now again, notice they're able to duplicate God's miracles. I'm telling you, witchcraft, sorcery are real. This is why Harry Potter and similar stories are a danger to our kids. Some of the video games that deal in the occult are dangerous to our kids. They glamorize sorcery. They glamorize the occult. And they suck kids into a dark and evil world that lusts for Satan's influence that is real and that is powerful and that can get a hold of their hearts. Be careful what your kids are into. It's not until we get to the third plague, the proliferation of lice, that Pharaoh's wizards can no longer match the miracles of God. It's the third plague, three strikes and you're out. And the water was turned to blood, so we're told, Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. I guess you could say that Pharaoh went into denial. (laughs) 
denial. Did y'all get that back over there? <laughs> denial. 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 Okay. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. I mean, this was a nightmare for the EPA. Blood pollution in the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Seven days. And I wanted to do chapter 8, but I've run out of time. So we better stop there. And we'll pick up chapter 8 next week. The second, the third, the fourth plagues are all in chapter 8. Make sure you read chapters 8 through 12 uh, before next Sunday. Chapters 8 through 12. And next week, plagues, plagues, everywhere plagues. Ten of them, nine more as a matter of fact. I think some of our teachers went to the frog exhibit down at Fernbank. Leslie, did you guys go to the frog exhibit? Did Donna go to the frog exhibit, James? Is that next week? Well, that could probably get you in the mood for next week's study if you went down to the frog exhibit. That's the second plague, frogs. And we'll leap into that next week. And then there's lice, and, and to be plagued with lice, that's a lousy thing. I could promise you that. And I'm really working on them for next week, trust me. There's more where that came from. So, Father, we thank you for your love for us, and we thank you, Lord, for our study tonight. And, Lord, we marvel, we really marvel over your awesome power. And Lord, you could have done all these things by the hands of angels. But you chose to use a man. You chose to take a man, an old man, past his prime. A man who thought his days of being useful were over. A man who had become content with just caring for smelly sheep. You took a man and you used this man in a way that, unlike you've used probably anyone else. And Father, we look at Moses' life and all of his excuses, and it reminds us of us, some of our excuses. And yet, Lord, who's to say that you can't use us in every bit of great, as great a way as you used Moses? Lord, help us to throw down our rod tonight. Help us, Lord, to admit our inadequacies and our weaknesses. And help us to throw it down. Just throw it down. Give it up. Turn it over to you. Dedicate it all to you. And who knows what you can do when our abilities and our talents become yours. Father, take us and use us this week. Do great things in and through us for your kingdom's sake. 
We love you, Lord. And the more we get to know you, Lord, the more we love you. Continue to work in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.